0: Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, still. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to go ahead and just turn your phone off. Huh? I know you think you can scroll through Facebook and listen to my sermon at the same time, but you can't. Multitasking is a lie. <clears throat> there is a misconception, writes sociologist Timothy Biblarz in the journa- Journal of Marriage and Family. The misconception is that children need both a mother and a father. Yet there is almost no social science research to support this claim. In contrast to this view, Ryan D. Anderson makes the controversial claim that there is no such thing as parenting. There is either mothering or fathering, and children do best with both. This view is not unique to Ryan Anderson, of course. Brad Wilcox, a sociologist at the University of Virginia, tells us, The best psychological, sociological, and biological research to date finds that men and women bring different gifts to the parenting enterprise. Then he goes on to argue that most fathers and mothers possess sex-specific talents related to parenting, and society should organize parenting and work roles to take advantage of the way in which these talents tend to be distributed in sex-specific ways." So sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, and all the other biologists, they've spent thousands of man hours and millions of dollars in, in grant research money researching something that anyone with an open Bible and a little bit of common sense already knows. That God created men and women differently. And even though we are different, we have complementary qualities, each of which are important for raising healthy children. Back to the experts. Wilcox reports that among the many distinctive talents that mothers bring to the parenting enterprise, three stand out their capacity to breastfeed, their ability to understand infants and children, and their ability to offer nurture and comfort to their children. He continues, speaking about fathers, they excel when it comes to discipline, rough play, and challenging their children to embrace life's difficulties. If all this academic jargon is a little little too much for you, if I'm kind of boring you to sleep in the first five minutes of the sermon, which is the opposite of what an intro is supposed to do, uh, let me simplify, okay? Uh, Mothers nurture and fathers lead. This truth is so self-evidently true that 2,000 years before any of these experts were born and had done any of their research, the Apostle Paul employs the metaphorical language of mother and father, to describe his own leadership, his ministry. And that's what this morning's text is all about. In this morning's text, Paul paints a picture of his gospel leadership using the image of a mother on the one hand and a father on the other. So, in verse 7, Paul says that he was like a gentle, nursing mother to the Thessalonians, but in verses 11 and 12, Paul says that he exhorted, encouraged, and charged the Thessalonians like a father. Now, a lot of single moms and single fathers, they do their very best to fill the shoes of both parenting roles. And some of them do like a really good job considering uh, their limitations. But every single mom, single dad, or child who grew up in a single parent family home will tell you that nobody can do both. You know, those shoes are just too big to fill. And Paul understands this reality. In this morning's text, Paul is not saying that he is a mother and a father to the Thessalonians. He's saying that his ministry has the flavor, the tincture of motherhood and fatherhood. He was, on the one hand, gentle, nurturing, and sweetly affectionate, like moms tend to be, but he was also challenging, strong, like fathers tend to be. Well, let's let Paul speak for himself as I read this morning's text and then We will pray and dive in. Chapter 2, starting in verse 9. No, excuse me, starting in verse uh, 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel to you. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. It's beautiful. It's good. You've given it to us so that we might know you more. So help us, Lord, stoke our affections for you as our God this morning as we listen to your word and make us more and more in, into the image of your Son. Amen. Now, you'll remember from last week that Paul wants to remind the Thessalonians that although he did have like, a very real authority among them as an apostle, he didn't come in throwing his weight around. That's not the way that he exercised his authority. He could have, but he didn't. So last week was the negative vision of Paul's ministry. He doesn't do that. This week is the positive vision for Paul's ministry. Well, if he doesn't come in throwing his weight around as an apostle, what does he do? Well, he comes in with a balanced approach of a mother and a father. So we're going to look at this uh, motherly aspect of Paul's leadership first. These will be the first three points of your sermons this morning. So note takers, I'm going to give them to you real quick. The love of a mother is gentle. Point number one is nurturing, point number two, and affectionate, point number three. Gentle, nurturing, and affectionate. So good. point number one. The love of a mother is gentle. Uh, as you all know, the reason why Blaine and Sam's sister aren't here this morning is because they just had a baby, okay? Oh, I feel like something you should like clap for, right? Huh? Ah, don't worry about it. I had to say it, so now it doesn't count, and uh, I recently saw a picture of Samantha sitting there holding the new baby, you know, and the baby was asleep on her shoulder, right, like, oh, and the head just right there, and in the picture, the baby just looked so soft, and it reminded me of when my babies were still babies, and it reminded me of how they smelled, and how they felt, and how fragile their little fingers and toes, and their little baby arms and legs felt all the time, and even the, the soft spot on the top of their head, you know, be careful. You don't want to give them brain damage. You want them to read and to be able to do math when they get older. You think about their little baby skin, how thin it is, you know, like, oh, I just feel like you could tear at any moment. You know, babies are fragile creatures. They're so fragile that like a, a normal parent, I didn't do this, but like a normal parent, when you pass the baby off to somebody, you always go, careful, careful now. Even if you don't say it out loud, you say it under your breath, right? Like, don't drop the baby. There is no level of gentleness greater than that of a mother with a newborn baby. And this, my friends, is how Paul says that he treated the Thessalonians. And the reason why is because they were babes in Christ, right? So he treated them appropriately. So let's just pause and consider one of the practical implications of what Paul is saying here about how he treated the Thessalonian Christians. We would do well to remember that there is a big difference between a baby believer and someone who's been walking with the Lord for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. And I don't necessarily mean to say that if you've been a Christian for 20 years, you're more mature than someone who's been a Christian for 10 years. That's often not the case. Sometimes people have been walking with the Lord for a very long time and don't have a very robust faith. But you get what I'm saying, right? There's a big difference between a baby Christian and someone who's further along the continuum of maturity. One of the reasons why Paul was so exceptionally gentle with the Thessalonians, treating them like newborn babes, is because they were newborn babes. So it makes sense that we would be more gentle with a two-year-old than a 12-year-old or a 20-year-old. We have to remember the same thing applies to those who are, well, new in the faith. Now, I'm not saying that we throw gentleness out the window once people begin to grow in maturity, you know, like you reach a certain benchmark and we don't have to be gentle with you anymore. Gentleness is just an aspect of being a Christian, Right? Paul has all different scenarios in mind in other letters where he talks about how we need to interact with one another in gentleness. So he says that we have to rebuke older men with gentleness in 1 Peter 5. He says we should in general rebuke our opponents with gentleness in 2 Timothy 2.25. And he doesn't say this, but I think generally speaking, we all recognize this to be true. We should probably be more gentle towards women than men. Having said that, we should still be especially gentle with newborn Christians, right? Consider how a dad is like really proud of his son's first steps and he's very patient and very gentle with that baby as he learns to walk, right? In a way that he would not be patient and gentle if that baby was 20 and still crawling around the house, you know, doing army crawls from his bedroom to the bathroom to the kitchen and back, right? There is a kind of patience that we owe to new Christians because they're fragile. We have to be gentle. Having said that, there is a time when Christians need to grow up. The author of Hebrews, he takes his readers to task for not being further along in the faith than where they are. They should be more spiritually advanced. He says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, right? That's the language of a baby. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So on the one hand, we treat babies like babies. On the other hand, once a baby is no longer a baby, we stop babying them. That's usually where dads are most helpful, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. This disposition of gentleness is, of course, the exact opposite of the authoritarian apostle that Paul says, I'm not like that. During my time in the army, I would often get to see guys go from having no authority or very little authority to having more authority, sometimes a lot of authority, as I watched them kind of climb their rank structure. And when I saw that, uh, I noticed that these guys, they always feel, felt like they had something to prove, you know, either to themselves or to their superiors or to the other guys in the company that they got from, you know, all your peers kind of still see you as one of the guys, so they would get promoted, they would get that new authority, and they would kind of start posturing, you know, puffing their chest out, barking orders. They did what we talked about last week. They, they just begin to throw their weight around. I almost never saw somebody get promoted and then lead from a position of gentleness, I think to do so in the military world would have been strange and maybe even shameful. It's just not part of the culture. That's not how you lead. I think that's probably true of the Apostle Paul as well in the world in which he lived. For any man to have any kind of significant authority and then to refer to his exercise of that authority as like a mother with a newborn baby would have been scandalous. That's not how men talked in the ancient world of Greece. So, where did Paul get this idea from? Well, he got it from Jesus. Listen to how Jesus describes the exercise of his authority. He says, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, I'm gentle. Paul knew that true gospel leadership must be grounded in the gentleness of Christ, so much so that at one point, when he was dealing with these so-called super apostles, as he's writing his letter, his second letter to the Corinthians, right, these super apostles had crept in and they had begun to sow seeds of doubt about the authenticity of Paul's authority and they have, they began to say that they were the ones that had real authority and they were trying to kind of take the church away from Paul and this is how Paul replied. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So when Paul's authority was challenged, he didn't ramp up his carnal rhetoric of authority. He didn't embrace a fallen masculine understanding of authority. No, he pressed into gentleness. He led with gentleness. This is why later in his ministry, when he would write to the Apostle Timothy, lowercase apostle, He would say, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Remember, this is like Paul's last will and testament to his beloved son, Timothy, his disciple, the guy that he's passing the baton on. He's getting ready to go give his life for the gospel. What is he going to tell Timothy about how to be a good gospel leader? You know, like a dad sending his son off to college, what are your last words that you have for your son? Well, Paul felt it was important to remind Timothy, to exhort Timothy, to challenge Timothy to embrace gentleness as a leader. Earlier in the same letter, Paul tells Timothy, listen, as you're going around looking for men to appoint as pastors, you have to look for all these different qualifications, right? They have to be able to teach, they have to be this, they can't be that. And in those qualifications, he says that a man must not be a drunkard, must not be violent, but gentle. If a man can't be gentle, he can't be a shepherd in God's church. Why? Well, Because remember, a pastor is somebody who should exemplify the things that we expect of all Christians. And the Bible says that gentleness is something that we should expect of all Christians. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Uh, you see gentleness in there? That doesn't mean that pastors never have to, you know, get the rod out. But that's usually with wolves, right? Not with the sheep. Men, take note. There is no asterisk next to that fruit of the Spirit gentleness there in that list in Galatians 5 that says that you don't have to be gentle if you're a man or if you're in leadership. Quite to the contrary, the Apostle Paul seems to communicate to us that there is no true leadership apart from spirit-wrought gentleness. James 3.17 But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and gentle. Point number two. Motherly love is nurturing. Is nurturing. A domineering leader does not give, he takes. Right? His authority is a tool for his own personal gain. The authoritarian leader diminishes those who are under their authority. But Paul says that the exercise of his authority is not like this. He doesn't take, he gives. Well, in what way? Look at verse 7 again. He says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Think about it. What can a baby give its mother? Nothing. What does the mother give her baby? Everything. All of herself. Which is why Paul says what he says in verse 8. Go back there. In verse 8, he says, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. So we weren't just here doing our job. Like, that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're apostles. I'm a missionary. Jesus sent me out to do this. But it's not like I just came here and did the bare minimum. I just shared the gospel with you. No, he says, We were ready to share not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. That doesn't read as strong in the English as it does in the Greek, but basically he's saying, we gave all of ourselves to you. We gave our entire life to you. And if you want to know what that looks like, I don't have to give you a metaphor, because Paul already gave you the metaphor. The image that Paul gave you is of a mother with a child at her breast literally giving all of her life to the baby. And moms, you know that that's not even a quarter of it, right? You give all of your sleep, all of your energy, all of your attention... So much so that husbands are kind of moping around the house, you know, new babies around the house, like, man, don't forget about me. You know, I'm still here, right? That's because moms are like zeroed in on giving their kids every last ounce of who they are. And Paul says that's how he was as a leader. He was nurturing. He gave all of himself to these Thessalonian Christians. You see that trotted out in verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to dig into that now because earlier... When I preached chapter one, I spent a lot of time looking back at these uh, looking forward at these verses, but let's just read them so we can see Paul uh, talk about exactly what that looked like. He said, "For you, remember, brothers, our labor and toil. we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any, to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers." Paul gave him his whole self to these Christians. Uh, One of the most common jokes that I hear from people as a pastor is the uh, the you know you only work one day a week joke. You know what I'm talking about? And like uh, I try to laugh along with that because, well, one just because you know hey don't take yourself too seriously, right? But the other reason that I try to laugh along with it is because I understand that for a lot of people, it's not really a joke. You know, they're joking about something that they've experienced and they're kind of using (laughs) comedy to cope with it, but for a lot of people, they their pastors really do only work one day a week or maybe two, right? You know, he's the sermon dispenser, the Bible study dispenser. And sometimes I have trouble laughing along with that joke. I don't want to make it awkward, but I have trouble laughing along with the joke because I know that a shepherd isn't supposed to be. A Bible study dispenser or a sermon dispenser. A pastor is just another word for a shepherd. And if you know anything about shepherds with their sheep, they give their whole lives to the sheep. They're with their sheep constantly. They're in the field with their sheep. They smell like their sheep. When one of their sheep goes missing, their whole world comes to a halt until they go and find the sheep. One of their sheep is sick. They have to deal with that. You know, you think about a mom again. A good mom doesn't work one day a week. Right? She doesn't have office hours for her nurturing. A, a lot of people have a problem with paying their pastors uh, in general and paying them well in particularly. And when you have this experience of a pastor, I think that makes sense. I get it. Like, why would you want to pay somebody well when they're only working one day a week? But a true sep- shepherd, when he gives him his whole self to the church... Well, you should take care of that man because he should be giving so much of himself that it's almost impossible for him to work a nine-to-five job. If you've never experienced that in a pastor, I would encourage you to find a healthy church and to join it. For the men in this church who aspire to be elders, uh, I understand that this vision of leadership in the church might seem a little burdensome to you. Right? I'm like, you should be working so hard at being an elder that like, it's hard to do anything else. Well, two things on that. Number one, the Bible has categories for lay elders and full-time pastors, okay? Elder, pastor, same thing. But the Bible has categories for somebody whose job this is to do full-time and somebody else whose job is to nurture part-time. So in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, that, that language there of double honor, that just refers to pay, right? Let them, like, compensate them, pay them. Why? Well, because they have to labor in preaching and teaching. I know it seems like what I do up here isn't very hard. You could probably get up here and do it. But you believe it or not, it's really hard, and I put a lot of time into it. And don't hurt my feelings by telling me that it doesn't seem like, like it would. And I also realize that it's a little weird for me to be the one saying this stuff, but I just think it's true, so I don't care, so I'm going to say it. But Paul is saying that there are some elders in the church who they spend so much time laboring, preaching and teaching, not just on a Wednesday night, just on a Sunday, in personal conversations, preparing, all that stuff, that like if they were to go and try to do anything else, it would be really impossible. They would be a man divided. This concept is not unique to Paul. This is drawn straight from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when God takes his people to the promised land and he goes and he divvies out the land, right, he doesn't give any to the Levites, right, the priesthood, the tribe of the priesthood. Why? Because they're going to be so busy serving the people of God that they're not going to have time to tend the fields and work the land and do all the other things that the other Israelites were supposed to do to sustain themselves. So what does he do? He says, listen, everyone else in all these other tribes, you give a portion of what you get to the temple and that will take care of the priests. So again, this is not new. Anybody who's giving their life entirely to the church should be compensated so that they can focus on those things. Now, an implication of this truth is that for non-staff elders, or what we sometimes call lay elders, they don't labor as much as regular pastors. So, you know, Grant is probably gonna put in 10 hours this week or sometimes more, sometimes less, as compared to my 50, 50, 40, 60 hours this week. And it's right, because he's not being paid to do that. He's got a wife and four kids and a full-time job and hobbies. I don't know. No. Now, what I tried to do there with that little qualification for, you know, lay elders is let a little bit of steam out of the pressure cooker, you know? Like, hey, I'm telling you, like, being a shepherd is a good thing, and you should be willing to, like, give your life to nurturing the church and that's hard and but here let me let a little pressure out of the pot. Now let me back off a step and say I don't want to let too much pressure out of the pot because even if you aren't a full-time pastor, if you give your life over to shepherding in the church, it is still very difficult work. It is a burden, a joyful burden just like parenting, right? We love our kids, we would never we would never, you know, wish that we didn't have them. Uh, But it can be a burden sometimes. And the same thing is true for being an elder in the church. It can be all-consuming. It's truly something that you have to give your life to. Let me just tell you, friends, I can't imagine what else you might want to give your life to. Men in the church, if you're not aspiring to be an elder, I understand maybe you've got certain issues that you think, ah, I probably, I'm not qualified, or I'm not particularly gifted to do that. Like, it says able to teach, and I can't teach. Okay, I get that. But if you think you could be an elder, and you don't want to be an elder because it's just going to take up too much of your life, you, you know, you're know, you going to spend so much time trying to nurture in the sheep, you're not going to have anything left over for anything else. I just want to ask you, what else do you have to give yourself to? What is more worthy than the call to shepherd God's people for the glory of God's name? Your hobbies? Your career? I don't know. I just don't think those things are going to matter in eternity. Now, Some of you guys are sitting here like, Sean, what is this, a sermon just for pastors? Am I at a pastor's conference? What does this have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you. First of all, because you're the one who chooses your elders. So if you have a man in the church that's elected to be an elder in the future and you don't see him nurturing the congregation, you should vote no and prevent him from being an elder. You also have the responsibility of making sure that your pastors are doing a good job being pastors. So if I, for example, ever get to a place where I just show up for a paycheck and I'm obviously not here to nurture the sheep, you should fire me. And part of this morning's sermon is creating that category for you. You should expect me, as your pastor, to be nurturing to you. I'll nurture the life out of you. I'm going to nurture you so hard. It also applies to discipleship. Every Christian in the church is called to be in some kind of relationship with Jesus where you are being discipled by him and then to engage other people in some kind of discipleship effort to help them follow Jesus. Maybe that's just your wife. Maybe that's just your kids. But for most of us, it should extend a little bit further out from that. Guys should be grabbing other guys. Women should be grabbing other women. We should be praying for one another, encouraging one another, rebuking one another, reading scripture with one another, counseling one You know, we should be doing this discipleship stuff and you should know that that is a nurturing relationship. You have to give of yourself in order for that to happen. We live in the technological age where we just think everything is like a, you know, click and drag off of my hard drive onto the cloud, you know, Tr- Transfer of information. And we think, like, that's what discipleship is like, right? Just, you know, information from my cerebral cortex to your cerebral cortex. Discipleship done. No. Discipleship is giving of your whole life to another person. Being available for them with your time and your talent and your treasure. Loving them, nurturing them, caring for them. And that's what you should expect from people who are discipling you. All right. One more, one more little subpoint here. It seems obvious, and it seems like you shouldn't have to say it, but those are usually the things that you need to say most emphatically. Uh, pastors must love the congregation. Pastors have to love the people in their church. A pastor who only serves because he has no other career options is going to be a bad pastor. A pastor who only serves the church because that's where he gets his money from, is going to be a really bad pastor. A pastor who serves the church because this is how he feeds his ego. He likes to have his little platform and he likes to get up and do his little song and dance. That guy is going to be a bad pastor. I'm not saying a pastor who loves his sheep will be a perfect pastor, but I'm saying that a pastor who loves the congregation will be so much better equipped to deal with the difficulties that come along with being a pastor. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, hey, listen, you can have prophetic powers, you can have revelatory knowledge, you can have faith to move mountains, but if you don't have love, none of that matters. The same thing is true of being a pastor. You can have great oratory skills, you can have an in-depth knowledge of the Bible, you can have strong leadership acumen, and you can have a really great personality and a million-dollar smile and skinny jeans to boot. But if you do not love your congregation, none of that matters. Look at the language that Paul uses in this text, right? I I treated you like a newborn babe. I I nursed you like a mother, right? He says, I was affectionately desirous of you, right? This is the language of love. And if a pastor says, well, I just don't know what there is to love in these people. Well, then that pastor needs to get a different job. Because he obviously doesn't understand the gospel, which says that God loved us when we were unlovable, when we were dead in our sins, when we were his enemies. God loved us. He came for us. He gave himself to us. If God can love sinners like you and like me, then pastors can love even the most difficult members of the most impossible congregation. If you don't believe me, just read the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Point number four. Fatherly love. The first three quarters of the sermon was three different points about motherly love. I just got one point for you. I'm just gonna, all of it's under fatherly love. Okay. (coughs) Uh, good dads push their children to be the best that they can be, right? They, good dads push. That's a big part of what they do. They push their kids to strive for excellence, to learn perseverance, to power through the pain, to embrace the challenge, to grow. Now, I'm not saying that moms don't do this. They do. But I think we can all agree that dads are the pushers. They are the exhorters, the challengers in the family. Moms are the ones that usually have to, have, that usually have to tell dad to back off, take it easy, you know, you know, leave my baby alone, that kind of thing. Moms tend to nurture the children in whatever stage of development they're in. Dads are the ones who tend to push the children out of that current stage and on into the next one. We see this fatherly impulse in this morning's text. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You'll notice that Paul uses three words here to talk about how he was like a father in his leadership to the Thessalonians. He uses the word exhort, encourage, and charge. Now, when you go uh, rooting around in the Greek here, you'll see that. Uh, these are really three very similar words that Paul is kind of using for rhetorical effect to just communicate the same point. And the point that Paul is saying is, when I was with you, I pushed you to strive towards godliness. If you profess to belong to God, make sure that you are living it out. That's what all this walking language is about in verse 12. You see that? He, said we, he says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk, in a manner worthy of your calling, right? That walk language is just how you live your life. Paul uses the same language in all of his letters, but for now, I just want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Turn with me and keep your finger where you are in Thessalonians. Let's turn to Ephesians real quick. We'll start in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? That's how you lived your whole life. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You see, so even in the same couple of verses, Paul uses walked and lived synonymously. A little later in verse 10, Paul uses the same language to talk about our good works. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? What he means there is that God has these good works prepared for us and we need to live them out. Now you can do the same thing. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's almost the exact same language that he uses in 1 Thessalonians 2. You can see it in chapter 5, verse 2 as well. And walk in love. Now go to chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So what Paul is saying there is he's saying, listen, you used to be like this and you walked like that, but now you profess to be of the light, so I want you to walk like that. That's the exact same thing that he's saying in verse 12, right? He's saying, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you and charged you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. God has called you, now walk like it. If you've been a member of this church uh, for any length of time now, you've heard me beat this drum over and over and over and over again. The reason why I beat this drum over and oh no, I'm not going to do it. The reason why I beat this drum over and over again, well, there's two reasons. Number one, because we live in the Bible Belt. We live in the Bible Belt where it's just normal for people to profess to belong to the kingdom of God and then live like they belong to the kingdom of darkness. People just don't think twice about it. You know, you see them out, you know, (laughs) I don't want to give any specifics, just in some obvious kind of sin on the weekend, and then you'll talk to them at church on Sunday, and just like there's no, they don't see the disconnect, right? We just assume that everyone who's here that says that they're a Christian is a Christian. But the Bible says that if you are a Christian, you have to walk like it, you have to live like it. The second reason why I beat this drum over and over again is because the Bible beats this drum over and over again. You just saw that. We saw it in Ephesians. Now we see it in 1 Thessalonians. It's like what the entire point of 1 John is about, this is the entire book of 1 John. The first time that you should hear this exhortation in the life of this church is when you join the church. In our third membership class on the church covenant, we have a paragraph in there which basically says this same thing. It says, We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. Honestly, we probably could have just quoted Scripture instead of having that paragraph in there. It's basically saying the same thing, and I think Scripture is probably clearer than this old English way of phrasing things. At Sixth Avenue, we think it should be normal for Christians to be telling each other to live in line with our profession of faith. It should be normal for us to hear other Christians telling us and calling on us to live in light of our profession of faith. and It doesn't have to be an apostle who does that. Remember, apostles were this unique phenomenon in the life of the found, founding of the church. But after the apostles were gone, that authority is given to the church. right? And as a church, we have the ability and the responsibility and the privilege to be telling each other to make sure that we're actually living out the gospel that we claim to believe. That should just be normal in the life of the church. It shouldn't be anything exceptional. It's just Christianity 101. Now, There's a way in which you could seriously misunderstand uh, this last point that I've been trying to make. Uh, And if you misunderstand this point, you're going to misunderstand the text. And if you misunderstand this text, you may be in danger of misunderstanding the gospel. So just make sure that we don't do that. If what you hear me saying this morning is that you must live a certain way so that God will receive you into his kingdom then you have fundamentally misunderstood what I'm saying. The gospel does not say do this or don't do that and maybe God will accept you into his kingdom. The gospel says you can't do enough good things and you can't not do enough bad things in order to be accepted into God's kingdom. The gospel says that God is holy and righteous and perfectly pure and that we are sinners, fallen, corrupt, broken, shot through with evil from first to last. What that means is that we cannot be accepted into His sight. The Bible says that only the righteous can enter into God's kingdom. And that's really bad news for us because the Bible says that there is no one righteous. No, not one. See, friends, God doesn't call the righteous to Himself. Well, Sean, I don't know about that. Well, okay, let me just let Jesus tell you how he preached the gospel. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, friends, if the gospel said that you had to become righteous before you could enter the kingdom, then you would never enter the kingdom. No one would ever enter the kingdom. You cannot become righteous on your own. You need what theologians in the old days used to call an alien righteous. You need a righteousness from outside of yourself that comes by faith and faith alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that? You see, we don't have a righteousness of ourselves but God can give us the righteousness of Christ. And if we have that, then we can freely and joyfully and confidently enter into God's kingdom. But there's a time between our salvation when we're declared righteous and our glorification when we will enter into the fullness of our righteousness that, that, that this is the meantime in between time where we have to live between the time of our salvation and the time that Jesus calls us home. And in this morning's text, what Paul is saying is, In that meantime, you need to live out your righteousness. God has made you righteous in Christ. Now you need to live it out. What God is emphatically not saying this morning is that you must earn your way into his family. God says that if you are a Christian, you are a member of the family. Now live up to your identity. I think it's so important to emphasize this aspect of the gospel that our father in heaven is not like so many earthly fathers employing shame and guilt in order to secure our compliance to his moral standards. Friends, there is no shame. There is no guilt. There is no condemnation for those who were in Jesus. But there's also no pass on spiritual laziness. Everyone in the family must do their part. Everyone must pull their weight. Everyone must strive to live out the ethos of the family that they are a part of. You know, I didn't grow up with a dad, uh, but I have gotten a chance to be a dad. Right now, one of my kids is about to be in big trouble. I've also gotten to see other good dads. And one of the things that I notice about good dads is that when their kids obey them, they don't do it to try to get their dads to love them, to try to earn their father's affection. When, when kids do good things when they have good dads, it's because they love their dad so much and they know that they already have his affection. And they just want to do good because of that, because of what they already have. So I just want to tell you this morning that if you love your Father in heaven, and if you have been received into his kingdom, then you will work to glorify him you will strive to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, not so that you may have God's love, but because you already do. Okay, let me close with a short summary. I can tell by the frantic child activity that I'm, I, I don't have much left. Leadership models that are all father or all mother are imbalanced and Unbiblical. Guys, you know the kind of ministries I'm talking about. The I'm going to teach you how to be a real Christian man, and it's gun-toting and shooting and cowboy boot-wearing and car-fixing and grease on your face, hunting and fighting and smoking cigars, and that's the only real way you can be a man and a leader. No. But also no to the let's just get together and talk about our feelings all the time. I'm a pretty emotional guy, and I just... uh... Just like a family needs the complementary gifts of both husband and wife, mother and father, gospel leadership must have a balance between strength and nurture, exhortation and affection. And the reason why is because that's what God is like. It's true that God has chosen to reveal himself to us primarily as a father, and we should not engage in any kind of of progressive re-imaging of God that would lead us to, for example, change his preferred pronouns as he has revealed them to us in scripture. Having said that, we must not forget that God uses matronly imagery to reveal himself to us. This is the Bible, Isaiah 66. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. Right? God says, I'm going to comfort you like a mom with a sick baby. Isaiah 49, 15, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget. Jesus spoke about his love for the people of Israel in this way. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who who are sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Right? Jesus says, I'm like a mama, chick, uh, a mama chicken, you know, gathering these little baby birds under my wings. Friends, there is something about the love of God that is best understood and that can only be understood when we look at both fathers and mothers. And the reason why is because God created men and women in his image. When God created man, he didn't stop there and say, here in this masculinity is the fullness of the image of who I am. He created females who are going to be mothers and wives. And in their female image, there is represented an aspect of the nature and character of who God is. We must not forget, friends, that Jesus is the lion and the lamb. He is at once strong and gentle. He is fierce and nurturing. He is wrathful and full of mercy. And may the same thing be said of all those who lead and love God's people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to live out the fullness of the identity that you have given us as your people. Help us to strive, Lord, not in our own strength, but with the strength that you provide. In your son Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen.